The following program contains mature themes that may offend you and challenge you. As a result, you may paint an innumerable amount of Bristol boards, piss, and exhale fire, call for the host to be disemboweled in the village square, push for suppression, compelled speech, and an infinite number of deplatformings. Other listeners may experience the urge to laugh as we all hurl towards Armageddon, tolerate diversity of thought, control their childlike emotional impulses, stop taking everyone and everything so seriously. But either way, listener discretion is advised. This is Unmentionable, an unhealthy dose of realism with your host, Jordan Power. Because democracy basically means government by the people, of the people, for the people. But the people are retarded because democracy. <laughs> that was Shivam's grandpa talking sense. <laughs> Yes. He said it, I didn't. <laughs> I've got another clip for you. I found this one uh, floating around Instagram. I just and, realized uh, that it might... G- give it a hit, I Shibble. just realized that it might not be that bad to be skinny as hell. And um, <laughs> in case of a crisis, just in case Freddy Krueger or I'm getting chased or whatever, they ain't gonna find me. <laughs> you can't even find me. Watch this. Where am I? <laughs> I know you can't. <laughs> Oh, he, he ain't looking no more. Oh, my God. I call it the tree maneuver. <laughs> I just really... Good one. Oh a, lot of fun, a, lot of, a lot of talent floating around there. Welcome to Unmentionable Podcast. I'm Jordan Power. This is Shiva, my producer. New episodes every Friday. I could be followed on Instagram at jpowercomedy. The show can be followed at Unmentionable Podcast. If you'd like bonus content every week, patreon.com slash unmentionablepodcast. If you are a listener on Spotify, you will notice that about a third of our catalog is has locks beside them. So if you'd like to access those episodes, you can hit the lock button and you'll get a link emailed to you from Spotify to become a monthly member. It will unlock that 30-something episodes. They are never becoming unlocked. There are some really, really, really great episodes. I actually locked some of those episodes or told Shivam to lock some of those episodes that are some of the best episodes of the show. So if you have a long road trip, something like that, I would highly advise you to... Take the time, sign up, support the show. If you are an Apple user, you'll see a button at the top of your player. If you hit that, uh, your Apple Pay will pop up. You double tap it, and you are a subscriber to the show, again, on a monthly basis, and it will unlock those episodes. Your whole timeline will change, and you'll see them all appearing there. And as always, patreon.com slash unmentionablepodcast. And final promos, my book's Famous Anus, available on Amazon. Free with an Audible subscription. Oh. Free. Free stuff. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I talked about last week, I noticed the documentary What is a Woman is really starting to take off, and I talked about last week on the show about my thoughts on that, if you want to check that out. But, um, you know, I was talking about I was seeing a lot more D-trans individuals. Those are individuals that have detransitioned after... Uh, I think taking hormones, surgery, some of them for a little bit, but some of them, you know, four or five years. 
And this is a tweet that is going viral on Twitter today. It already has 11,000 retweets, and it was just released this afternoon. And I just wanted to read it for people because it was kind of the point I was trying to make about necessary guardrails around this stuff, meaning, like, I'm not against transitioning, but I am against sort of erring on the side of, like, self-affirming and children who, you know, six months ago thought that they might be a superhero then getting to self-affirm and, and tell you what they are when you wouldn't let them do other adult-like decisions in their life. So here's, uh, I'm going to read it to you. It says, I want to tell everyone what they took from us, what irreversible really means, and what that reality looks like for us. No one told me any of what I'm going to tell you now. I have no sensation in my crotch region at all. You could stab me with a knife and I wouldn't know. The entire area is numb, like it's shell-shocked and unable to comprehend what happened even four years on. No one told me that the base area of your penis... No one told me that the base area of your penis is left. It can't be removed. Meaning, you're left with a literal stump inside that twitches. Oh my god. When you take testosterone and your libido returns, you wake up with morning wood without the tree. I wish this was a joke. And that's something that will never come back and one of the reasons why I got surgery. My sex drive died about six months ago on, on hormones, and at the time I was glad to be rid of it. But now, 10 years later, I'm realizing what I'm missing out on and what I won't get back. Because even if I had a sex drive, my neo-vagina is so narrow and small, I wouldn't even be able to have sex if I wanted to. And when I use a small dilator, I have random pockets of sensation that only seem to pick up pain rather than pleasure. Any pleasure I do get comes from the prostate that was moved forward and wrapped in glands from the penis, meaning anal sex isn't possible and can risk further damage. Then there's the dreams. I dream often that I have both sets of genitals. In the dream, I'm distressed I have both. Why both, I think. I tell myself to wake up because I know it's just a dream, and I awaken into a living nightmare. In those moments of amnesia, as I would wake, I would reach down to my crotch area expecting something that was there for three decades, and it's not. My heart skips a beat every single damn time. Then there's the act of going to the toilet. It takes me about 10 minutes to empty my bladder. It's extremely slow, painful, and because it dribbles no matter how much I relax, it will then just go all over that entire area, leaving me soaking. So after cleaning myself up, I will find moments later that my underwear is wet. No matter how much I wipe, it slowly drips out for the best part of an hour. I never knew at 35 I ran the risk like smelling like piss everywhere I went. Now I get to the point where I'm detransitioned and the realization that this is permanent is catching up with me. During transition, I was obsessive and deeply unwell. I cannot believe they were allowed to do this to me, even after all the red flags. I wasn't even asked if I wanted to freeze sperm or want kids. In my obsessive, deeply unwell state, they just nodded along and didn't tell me the realities, what life would be like. And finally, there's dilation, which is like some sort of demonic ceremony where you impale yourself for 20 agonizing minutes to remind you of your own stupidity. This isn't even the half of it, and this isn't regret either. This is grief and anger. Fuck everyone who let this happen. When I lost 1,600 mils of blood during surgery, it took days to get a blood transfusion. 
the surgery lasted three hours longer. Uh, that's kind of the end of it. And then basically Twitter, then Twitter tried to hide it because, you know, anything that goes against the narrative needs to be removed. Anyway. Holy fucking shit, bro. And, uh, I don't then think it's helpful for people who are going through things like this to be silenced by social media companies or silenced by people who are trans and had a positive experience because, their experience is still real and now they're very isolated and damaged and they need all the support that they can get. So that's kind of my point around the censorship when you start narrowing the narrative around these things is that these voices don't get heard um, because people believe these kind of voices are, you know, a threat to the narrative or anything like that. But this is reality. This is reality on Reddit D trans. I've asked Shivam to get this person on the show I think it's fascinating. I'm not pushing a narrative, but I am definitely exploring the other side of what seems to be permeating mainstream culture at the moment. And uh, these puberty blockers are not reversible. The NHS just had to update their website to let you know that they aren't reversible. So no matter what wokey person is shoved in your face and, you know, you see on YouTube or social media, the voices they allow to be elevated... There's something a little dangerous going on with the kids. And when I saw something like that, I was absolutely horrified. And if I'm the doctor right now, I'm thinking there's a class action lawsuit coming my way in a few years. You know, this is why you don't do the self-affirming thing. This is why you ask questions to get to the bottom of this, because this is irreversible damage. It's, it's, it's deeply terrifying. On a lighter note... <laughs> On a lighter note, um, <laughs> Lizzo <laughs> released a song called Girls. 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 G-R-R-R-L-S. Girls. Fancy. <laughs> um, now, what I've said on the show is why I never want to sort of create a fan base that will cancel me because... What Lizzo realized when she released this song is she used the word spaz in one of the lyrics, something like, I'm a spaz. Now, when I was younger, spaz was sort of just this language for someone who was clumsy, you know, would always like kind of fall over things and didn't didn't necessarily have like a physical disability. But there's certain people that are just spazzy. I, I believe it probably comes from spasm, mm-hmm. I would imagine, which we all have some muscle spasms. But anyways, the community... They, the, they believe that this is ableist language. So people that are disabled are saying like, you know, I have, I'm clumsy too, but it's because I have cerebral palsy or whatnot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so now the problem is, is that with the radical woke is you'll never be virtuous enough. Right. People like Lizzo that, keep catering to these people over and over some of them would have legitimate concerns like you know you might say to someone i don't appreciate that word but you could really cut apart anything right so she's catering to them over and over and she doesn't realize the jokes on her because the goalpost is going to be always be moving 
right? A lot of these people think like, well, if I like Drew Barrymore, you know, she said someone was crazy, then she had to do that hostage video, which we played on the show. And now Lizzo had to, she wrote this saying, it's been brought to my attention that there's a harmful word in the new, my new song, Girls. Let me be, make one thing clear. I never want to promote derogatory language. It wasn't derogatory uh, 10 minutes before this. As a fat black woman in America, I've had many hurtful words used against me. So I overstand the power words can have, whether intentionally or in my case, unintentionally. I'm proud to say there's a new version of Girls with a lyric change. This is the result of me listening and taking action from 1% of the population on Twitter (laughs) who's perpetually offended. As an influential artist, I have decided to be part of the change I've been waiting to see in the world. You know, from a song which calls women bitches for three minutes. You see my point? (laughs) That's probably not a good idea either. Anyway, it's so some of the comments were like, good for you, Lizzo. You know, we own you. You don't have... You know, you're not really an artist. We decide what, which, I mean, let's be honest. Let's be honest. You know? Yeah. That separates the icons. You go fuck yourself. That's what you say to those people. Oh, really? You go fuck yourself. How about that? I'm not encouraging her to, you know, use certain really inappropriate words or like a white person using the N word. Of course. Yeah. Do some soul searching, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, they own you now. So now you're going to live an anxiety-inducing existence where you will walk on eggshells around these people and they will criticize every single thing you do for the rest of your life and it will never be enough and you'll never be virtuous enough. My point, right underneath it, someone responded. Lizzo, I like you and your music. But the lack of alt text on a post apologizing for using an ableist slur in one of your songs is very telling. So I guess she didn't use. Is there a software that like if you're blind, it reads it to you? Is that the idea? Is that Twitter's problem? It happens on Instagram. Like it it reads it to you. you So she didn't click the button. Yeah. What a fucking monster she is. She's. Oh, my God. See? <laughs> that is you is mean, very telling. Do you mean visually or like? I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's trying to get me to say that she's a walrus, and I will not. <laughs> I will not. We're all di- Shivam always tries to make me get me to make fat jokes about fat women. <laughs> I'm not saying I wouldn't make jokes, but I'd make more jokes about yeah. the compulsions around it all and the lies and the denial. Yeah. I don't really just go like you're fat. No, That's what Shivam does. <laughs> Because I'm fat. Speaking of kind of fat, there's a clip of Amy Schumer, who, by the way, loved her body. Remember when she loved her body and she said, ladies, accept, you know, we have to accept different bodies and blah, blah, blah. Then she gets lipo. <laughs> you know, that's the thing is, it's like, it's just like, I just have a problem with the hypocrisy. Yeah. I don't really have a problem with a woman gaining weight like Amy did. You know, she went through pregnancy, stuff like that. I don't have a problem. But of a problem of you like telling the world, like selling it for neoliberalism, whatever movie it is or whatever is part of your brand, and then deciding to do that. It's a little odd. But the point of what I was making about, you know, sort of like why I don't want to participate in that culture of like the self-flagellation and endless woke and the endless like micro analysis of every word and try to appease every oppressed, some real, some in quotes, group out there is that eventually, specifically for comedians, like, it kills your career 
um, meaning the icons, your Chappelle's, your Ricky Gervais, your Joan Rivers, right up to the end knew that the role of the comedian is to speak the uncomfortable truths and break the tension. But if now you're trying to do comedy, which by its nature is supposed to elicit laughter and make people uncomfortable and people offended, if you're trying to do comedy, well, like now, like these people are doing, it's shit. It's becomes shit. And Amy Schumer is a very talented comedian. Two of my favorite jokes ever were, um, I said them on the show, uh, they say there's no wrong way to eat a Reese's, tell that to my uncle, keeps putting them in my underpants. <laughs> and the other one she had was, I used to have sex with Hispanic guys, now I prefer consensual. <laughs> ha ha ha. Here's the thing. This is the miscalculation of these people, why their careers will just slowly just... You know, the the chuckles will be there, but they'll just be kind of like huh, awkward agreement. Yeah. You know, you don't get that guttural laughter. And the miscalculation is they, they're doing comedy now for the 10% crazies on Twitter when the Hispanic people are going four sold-out shows in Toronto, Andrew Schultz, because yeah. they go, no, 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 we can take a joke. And that is the casual racism of it all is to say to a Hispanic person that I need to treat you with special gloves because I can't even make a joke about a stereotype around you because you might get offended, which is so insulting to your audience. And then it's a natural progression. And the logical conclusion is this clip of Amy Schumer from her new Netflix special trying to put something together that is kind of just going nowhere and quite lazy. And now this was a bit that the Oscars did say no, I couldn't say, and I loved it. So, okay, here it is. I don't know why they said no. So my husband was going down on me, (laughs) or as he calls it, squid game. (laughs) So he's in my nightmare alley, uh, my house of Gucci. (laughs) And I say, come on, come on, you know. He goes tick, tick, boom, he bells fast. I say, get off my dune, and that's how our son was born. What do you think? (laughs) Can you believe they said no to that? Can you even believe it? So get it with, guys, guys, she had the movie titles, and she just inserted them with some words around them and then made it vulgar because it's just the easy way to get laughs. Whoa. It's unbelievable. So smart. It's a, it's, a, it's a bad gamble that a lot of comedians are making nowadays is they're forgetting that people go to comedy shows to be offended and to laugh and to gutturally laugh because that's memorable laughter is guttural laughter. And uh, that's the gamble. You see it with Sarah Silverman. You see it with Chelsea Handler. You see it with these kind of comedians. And then you look at who's the number one selling comedian in the world. It's Ricky Gervais. And that's what you can never get away from is that, like, you're not in this to be liked. You're in this to entertain. And you're in this to, to provide humor for sort of generally everyone, mm-hmm. not just a small subset that's going to cancel you when you step over any nebulous line that all of a sudden appears like, oh, you can't say spaz now. And if you do, you should remove it from your song, Lizzo, and then post an Instagram thing about that and then it will be something else it will be something else she says in her next song and her next song and she'll mess up a pronoun and blah 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 and then 
just a very tightly it's it's a constrained existence living under these strictures and uh it seems very anxiety inducing and artificial and i kind of pity a lot of these entertainers when i see this i kind of go like god just let loose just express yourself an artist is meant to express themselves and people are naturally going to be offended a lot of kids nowadays do get offended like that's the society we have built already so if they don't apologize and if they don't do it then their just career just plummets so but, but we you talking like, about 20 but you talking about 25 year olds or let's say your age group but that's what their audience but are going to be like 10 I, years later no i understand but but also like you're forgetting that the vast majority of the population with money to go to your shows is not that age group. It's 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Look at Ricky Gervais. No, but the kids are the people who would ask their parents, hey, take me to that show. And yes. then kids are the people but, like, but, no, no, and we then, don't go to Lizzo because she said this thing. No, but I don't even mean about Lizzo. Uh, Lizzo's kind of different because yeah. she's not really like... No, I'm just giving like an example. Yeah, but she's not that. really doing cultural commentary. She's an yeah. artist. I mean, like I would still go to a Lizzo concert. I'm not going for the like propaganda that she does. But the difference between that and Amy Schumer is that eventually when you go to a comedy show and you've gone a couple times and she used to make you laugh and she doesn't, it starts to trickle off. Maybe just she just lost it. Because, you know, like a lot of artists think do so. their best in the beginning and then they don't have like a lot left. It's it's like with a lot of artists, they do so amazing when they start out. And then when the time, like when, you know, like with musicians, uh, some people have their first three albums, four albums, like amazing. And then everything else is just bullshit and nobody likes them after. But everyone keeps like people put like different excuses. Oh, it's the propaganda. It's the politics. It's this and that. But it's just the artists didn't have it in them. That The talent. The sure. Thing you that possibly. About and, and that's disappointing that or maybe she's lost her love for the business. Which is another thing. Could happen. But I think it's kind of my point is like uh, the miscalculation that I say when I really do say it's 10% of the population that you're offending and 90% just want to go to Dave Chappelle or whatever is that the comment section on these clips doesn't lie. Meaning like you go to like Shane Gillis who just released a special on YouTube. It's got over 5 million views already and it's fantastic. It's probably one of the – I think it's the best of the year. You see the comments are like 98% positive. You go to the new Amy Schumer clip, 90% negative. Meaning like you do really see that proportional 10% versus 90%. Cause it's the same when you have a tweet, you go under, you, Netflix tweeted this clip, I go under, you know, vast, vast, almost nobody is enjoying this kind of basic pedestrian kind of humor. Um, and the same thing when you see Rotten Tomatoes, right? You go on Rotten Tomatoes and they'll, the critics will give, give Dave Chappelle 33, 40%. But then you go to the audience score and it'll be 40, 50,000 reviews and it's 98%. Yeah. And that, that is the like proof of what I'm saying. It's not just this anecdotal old yeah. Jordan, Jordan sort of thing. And I just believe that it's a possibly a miscalculation that they might regret or possibly they, want to get a movie deal and they and that to do some show that no one will watch and you're just kind of seeing now there's so many like crap shows that are just not getting cultural traction because they're written so uber woke so safe for this young ish for sure population but i'm i'm kind of seeing this like swing back in hollywood now where people are just like yeah i just kind of I just want to be entertained. I, I don't even care if it offends me. I'm just, I, this is manufactured. I mean, 
uh, I was talking to Adam and he went to a movie and it was like some wokey thing where like hey, the parents are lesbians and the child's non-binary. And then he went to this other one where like the movie concludes with like a man giving birth to a man. And it's what like, the fuck I know. Was he on? I just like I picture all these like construction guys, <laughs> you know, after like a hard week of roofing. Yeah. Like, honey, want to go see a movie? And they're they're not even like they haven't even like dipped their toes. Like yeah. they've even heard of non-binary. Yeah. And they go to these movies, and they must be like, what the, the like fuck's going on? In like the they're so they don't even have like any grasp of the culture. Yeah. Meaning, like I kind of have a grasp of the culture, like LGBT stuff like that. I kind of like. Okay, like, but the reason it looks weird to me is that, like, the statistically, like, if you want to put a gay person, lesbian person in a movie, whatever, good representation. But statistically, the idea that there's going to be, like, a, you know, lesbian parents with a non-binary son and the neighbors in a wheelchair, it's just, like, not really <laughs> representative of proportionally of what society's like. So I think that's the part when I see it, I go, like, there's no way all that would happen and it feels like a narrative's being imposed on you and it doesn't feel natural and it, it feels very stilted. And I think that's what a lot of people are picking up on when they go to these movies and they're being like, I'm being fed an agenda when I want to be entertained to a degree. It's interesting. It's interesting to see that shift in the culture. And then the question is, how do you even shift back? Because as you shift it back, you're going to have a lot of resistance from that loud 10% on Twitter who also is working at Twitter and Amazon. And you remember the Netflix employees walking out? They have an oversized belief of their influence in the culture. And how do you then just say, you know what, fuck off? And and you saw Netflix did that. They kind of basically said to their employees, if you don't want to, you're, you're going to work here and you're going to have to work on things you don't agree with, like Dave Chappelle's show and stuff like that. If you can't, if you don't have the maturity to do your job, uh, like this is not a platform for your activism. And it's why I say that like, if I was hiring, I would never hire someone who I could get the vibes that they were sort of a radical social justice warrior. I don't want to poison my office environment or my team with that sort of a vibe because it forces everyone else to self-flagellate and engage in sort of this like completely manufactured existence. They're always going to be offended. They're going to think your workplace is a place for them to change the world because they've been indoctrinated through university to believe that. And it's just not worth it for me. It's just not worth it to me. Business is hard enough. It's not worth it to me to have that extra pressure of someone in the office who is always having you uh, need to be the uh, person number three in the movie of their life. Mm -hmm. And believing that it's all about them and that they're on some mission to change the world and they can't coexist with people with different beliefs and stuff like that. I just don't want that. I don't think anyone can handle that in their business if they have their own Well, I will tell you anecdotally, I'm hearing from friends that work at entertainment companies and tech companies that it's very difficult for them now because they can't say anything. They can't do anything. They get called into HR. My friend at his job, he this one girl, she was sad, so he bought her an adult coloring book. It's like, you know, you know those coloring books? It's yeah. like supposed to relieve... Anxiety. It's like, just stop looking at your phone for eight hours a day. Try that. Right. And he gave it to her and it was a bunch of swear words. Like it would say like shit and you would color it and stuff like that. Well, she was so offended that she complained about him and he was fired. What? And he, they, she said that they were fostering a sort of environment that allowed this and blah, blah, blah. Bro, I don't know. This is what I'm talking about. I can't even have them as my friends. Sure. But this is my point is it like, I think a lot of these people wake up at 40 and go like, what was it all for? Did we dismantle capitalism? 
You know, did we did I made a lot of enemies. I I mean, it is intolerance It's ideological intolerance, meaning like, um, you know, at the end of the day, like if there was a book on Amazon that said gay people were evil, blah, blah, blah. I have to still stick to the principle that I believe it's better for society to allow everyone to speak rather to ha than have some third party like Nina Jankowicz deciding what the truth is. It's much better to just sort of allow conversation and then, you know, naturally through exchange, we sort of come to conclusions. But it's a it's a toxic environment to be around and I just don't want to be around it. I, I don't think most people want to be around it. And I imagine eventually it becomes very isolating because it becomes your entire identity and uh, most people don't want to participate in your political crusade all the time. And so you just ice, like you said, you just ice those people out of your life. It's a lot. And then they go crazier. And they expect a lot from the world for some reason. Like everybody owes them something. Listen, I had a friend of mine that, uh, that, you know, I won't say the name, but sort of when I met him was very, uh, had gone through the university experience and quite leftist and victimhood, everything offended by everything. And, um, through knowing me and sort of empowering him and stuff like that, his life is much better. It's Brain, like, brainwashing. <laughs> no, it's, no I think you're saying it was you. I'm like, but I empowered him to yeah. stop being a victim of everyone and sort of pierce the illusions of many of the things that he's been told are real, which are not like the fact that we have pride because some trans people threw a brick is just, you know, fatuous. So I've been empowering him to take on the world not see himself as a victim go for what he wants stop surrounding himself with people that are um miserable that aren't going to amount to anything and i see fire and passion in him that he can achieve greatness and that is the undertones of a lot of the stuff i say on the show it's just like i'm not i'm not running a bit i'm not it's not a grift or anything like that like i truly do believe that people, if you work hard enough, if you have even a moderate level of intelligence, but you have passion, you, you can go out there and achieve things that I didn't, I didn't think was possible for me and same, people same. in my life. But, you know, he's, he's waking up a year later sort of realizing, like, a lot of the things that were sold to him were a lie, you know? And it's hard to deprogram yourself from that stuff. And, you know, a lot of the stuff why I say, like, I unsubscribe from a lot of the LGBT stuff is because a lot of people don't really want to buy into the fact that a lot of the battles have kind of been won. And really a lot of the, I, I understand there's some stuff that the NGOs are fighting for with regards to trans rights in the United States. But for the most part, I, I don't see the value in living the rest of my life as a disempowered gay man. Um, feeling like I'm a victim of everyone is that like, Sure, it's harder to some degree, but also, like, I, I'm lucky in other ways. And uh, you cannot focus on these things and let you, them bog you down because um, it's, a, it's a sad life. It's also a road to nowhere to just tweet all day and just go on Reddit all day and just leave YouTube comments all day. And being surrounded by negativity, like, all the time, whole time. Yeah. Like, spaz offends you. Bro, you need to, like, change your circle. But, like, the, the the three hours that you talked about that in your group chat and, you know, commented on Lizzo's thing, uh, it, you could have been, like I said with our guest coming up, Stephen Diamond, is you could be honing a skill. You could be starting a business. 
you could be taking those steps to create the life that you want for yourself, but you have a finite amount of hours in a day. That's why I'm not really on social media. I'm not commenting on YouTube and stuff like that. It's because there is a finite amount of hours. And I just want to know, like, when you did all that and you wake up in five years and you didn't make any of your dreams happen, is like, what was it all for? Like, what was really achieved by Lizzo not using the word spaz when billions of people will probably still use it over the course of humanity? It's just what it is. It's just what it is. So... I'm happy that I've empowered that person to sort of take the reins on his life. And and he has said that when he stops surrounding himself with people that um, sort of see the world through distorted prism to a degree, um, that can't have an adult conversation or just really don't believe in themselves and have romanticized the idea of victimhood, that his life is dramatically improved. And I hate that it's being sold like so aggressively through these media channels nowadays. I hate it because I look at young people and I want to be like, you're so much better than this. You don't have to do this. You don't have to participate in this. Because while you're doing that, the 1%, the 2%, the 3% that said, fuck you, I'm going to go make something happen, they're working. They're at Starbucks working. They're networking. They're downloading that course and teaching themselves the skill. They are not sitting around ruminating. Anyway, a little something for you guys. So, um, he's our guest. Stephen coming Diamond. up on the show, Stephen Diamond. You may have, uh, you might remember that name from Tiger King 2, the Doc Antle story. Uh, Stephen's friend reached out to us to come on the show. Um, he said, I've been really following your podcast. Enjoy the show topics. Let's be honest, Charlie. You just spam that line to people. <laughs> I mean, you could have been no, a little more specific, especially the one about your father ruining your life. <laughs> like you just add a little, yeah, <laughs> a little more personalized. But luckily for you, Charlie, we still wanted to have Stephen on. Yes. <laughs> so you may have seen him on NBC's The Jane Pauley Show or the Netflix series Tiger King Two: The Doc Antle Story. Stephen became is a precocious young boy who became a magician. Why do I keep saying musician? Magician. magician. Uh, starting around the age of seven, and by the time that he was 18, I think he's probably making hundreds of thousands of dollars. Millions, bro. Millions. Millions before 18. No, I think he said 5,000 a he, show. He said 5,000 a show, and he's di- he's done millions. He doesn't keep all that. You gotta, you gotta feed the tigers. <laughs> Anyways, he was touring the world with tigers, performing. He's performed in over 100 countries. Um, he, used to, he was on a television show in South America. I don't remember the name, but it was like 80 million people watched him on there. And um, we talked a little bit about his childhood, the trauma that he went through, his career trajectory, and uh, how he's kind of overcome the trauma in his life and what it's like to be famous and not be famous anymore and then kind of famous again and the sort of famous people that he's worked with like Justin Bieber and stuff like that and what they really say about fame and how isolating it is um so it sort of morphs into different areas and we've split it up into two weeks so the first half is going to be this week and then you'll have to tune in next week for the second half so we hope you enjoy Stephen here's the interview I went to Vegas, um, probably like seven years ago 
And I just remember, huh? like, all the orifices on my body just, like, drying up. Like, I just, including yes. my butthole. But it was, like, <laughs> I just got, like, nosebleed, like, kind of almost nosebleeds in my mouth, my eyes. Like, I just, I guess I hadn't acclimated, yeah. right? Because I'm just a sad Canadian living in this hellscape. Here I go again, Stephen. Well, well let me tell you, um, lotion is your best friend. When you live in the desert, lotion, lotion, lotion every day. I moisturize every single day. And if you don't, um, you, you know, your skin will literally crack. Oh. Lotion. So you well, got to lo- He was saying the humidity in San Diego is also a problem. Yeah, you won't I have to lotion as much, but <laughs> anyway, so what, what has it been like, um, when you were on Tiger King 2, I've always wondered this because, you know, like a lot of times we focus on American media and we forget that it's just really, you know, America and then a little spillover into Canada. But when people go on Netflix, they say it's like next level because of the international reach, kind of like YouTube in the same way of like, you know, that's why Joe Rogan could grow so big because, you know, you have the international reach, the English speaking countries of like UK, Australia. So what was it like Right. right after Tiger King 2 aired? (laughs) <laughs> you know, um, it was crazy for a couple reasons. One, I kept it secret at the request of Netflix. There was this whole kind of conspiracy going on when we were filming this because Netflix didn't want Doc Antle to know that this was being produced. He only knew that there was going to be a season two, but he did not know that there was going to be a separate documentary that just focused on him um, called Tiger King 2, the Doc Antle story. So when we were producing that, Netflix was making a really big deal about just keeping it quiet because they were afraid he was going to go to court and try and fight uh, the fact that it was airing. So we, we kept the whole project secret and it was really tough. It was really hard. I, the only people that knew were my family and I only told them right before it aired. So no one knew. And I had been working on the show for a year prior to it actually airing. So it was, originally it was supposed to come out in March and then they postponed it because Bhagavan got into that trouble and ended up getting those two original felonies um, for uh, trafficking endangered wildlife. And so when that happened, they went, oh, the story's not over yet. There's more to film. So they were like, hang on, we're going to film some more. So they pushed the date back again. That time, I think they pushed it back to September. And then they moved it to November because of editing issues. And then I got a call like sometime in the early part of November, I want to say. And they they said to me, you know, we've been watching all of the footage we shot with you. And we think that this franchise has legs. And they were like, we, we kind of want to uh, do a spinoff and make the, cause they had played the Joe exotic thing out. And unless Joe got out of jail, do you the think, story sorry to interrupt, but do you think he's really going to get out of jail? Like, what do you, you think it's just over? Um, no, you know, Joe got set up. Uh, I, Listen, I I'm, have mixed feelings about Joe because there's a side to Joe that the public has never seen, and it's not a really good side. Um, so I know that Joe has a lot of fans out there, and I'm going to get a lot of hate mail from all of the people that, that are listening to this right now that are Joe Exotic fans. And I appreciate it. But what I will say in Joe's defense is that on the charges in which 
he has been convicted and is now sitting in jail. He was set up and he doesn't deserve to be in jail under those charges. That I agree with. I think that they went after him. Uh, they got him with the only thing that they could. I think that it was a setup. Uh, they wanted to take Joe down and they did everything that they could to find the shadiest people on the planet that would lie, cheat, steal and sell their grandmother on eBay if that's what it took to to get Joe behind bars. And ultimately, that's what happened. Right. I feel like a lot of the times when you watch these shows, it's just like, I mean, it's like how we treat anyone in life. Just people aren't really always what they are. They're complex. They're sort of like an effigy of what we, we think they might be you know, being a part of all this, what character and kind of who you knew and everything, like besides Joe, was there any character where you sort of felt like, yeah, that's not at all what I think that person's like? Well, Bhagavan's a perfect example. Um, I mean, the public there, I've been reading a lot of the comments in the chat rooms and on Reddit and different pl places. That's Joe Exotic. Are we still live? Calling. Oh, we, we get, we'll just leave this in. <laughs> hey, hang on a second i lost you i can't see you i'm I sorry like... i apologize no no worries uh, it's okay. my phone was on uh, off but my computer was not it's okay um i was saying you might find joe exotic back. giving you a call from jail facetime <laughs> <laughs> there we go okay heard his name i apologize <laughs> Um, no you were mentioning, so yeah, you were, were you asking? I was I'm mentioning sorry. like who is really mischaracterized it, you know, by the way, are we live right now? No, no, or no, no, is no, this no, being taped? no, it's, it's being, being taped. taped. Okay. Oh, good. All right. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. So, so tell me your question again. My question was sort of, uh, like I've heard about this, about like Carol Baskin and different characters that they're sort of, you know, when you do a doc, you send up for a documentary, like you, I have a lot of friends who work on, uh, in this like film production and reality TV. And it's like, you really can cut right. together any elements to sort of make whatever kind of person you want. Meaning mm -hmm. you take them saying something right. from scene a and then scene D and you merge it together to sure. create something. So I guess my point is whether it's like Tiger King one, Tiger King two, like who of the characters is really who, as they were depicted oh, yeah. is not reality to a degree. Yeah, I would. I think Bhagavan's a perfect example for that. Um, there, I've been reading a lot online uh, in Reddit and different. Um, I belong to some of the Tiger King Facebook groups. Uh, at first, I was secret in there, and then I made my profile known uh, after a while. But I will tell you that there's a lot of people online who have a very favorable opinion of Bhagavan. They think he's a great guy, and they think he's doing great work, and they support him. And I just wish people knew the truth because that's not the case at all. This guy is a monster, the likes of which that most people can't even begin to fathom. I mean, he's been, you know, involved in all kinds of nefarious activities since I met him in 1983. And, and he's just been, he's, he, he is a very manipulative, um, very controlling um, a, a malignant narcissist would be an understatement to describe him. Um, and, you know, let me put this in perspective for you. As a professional magician, when I was touring around the world, traveling, doing all these shows, uh, I've performed in over 100 countries. I've done over 10,000 live shows. I have personally shaken the hands of probably over a million people. I have never met a human being more evil than Bhagavan Antle. 
So that will put it into perspective. And I'll, I'll tell you another uh, little bit as well. Right after Tiger King aired, uh, I was deluged by unbelievable amounts of media requests to do interviews. And I turned them all down because I was afraid to put my neck on the chopping block while Bhagavan was still free. Uh, I only agreed to start doing interviews and talking to the media once he was arrested because I, I just felt like that I know this guy for almost 40 years. And I was just like, you know, he he's really seriously dangerous. You know, there are several people missing and or no longer alive um, that could be the result of some involvement that Bhagavan may, may have had. And so I... I can't prove it one way or the other, but I know the man very, very well. For over a decade of my, of my life, I traveled and toured around the world with him and the animals. So I know what he's capable of. He's tried to kill me on two occasions. What? So just that alone gives me Can we get a little extra detail about that? Sure. Uh, what do you want to know? How did he try to kill you? So the first time it happened, um, I was asleep at night at home and I heard some noise outside the window and I looked outside the window and saw Bhagavan doing something in a cat trailer, which was unusual. He didn't have very much to do with that kind of stuff. And so went down there and I kind of spooked him a little bit. He was ripping open a plastic bag. And when I spooked him, he spun around and he grabbed me by the throat and he shoved me up against a wall. And he was just squeezing the life out of me. And I caught him ripping open up a giant plastic bag brick of cash. Now, at this time in our career, we didn't have two nickels to rub together. We, we were broke as a joke. And it was a struggle just to eat and survive every day because every penny that we made would go into feeding these cats. You know, I'll give you an example. Just one Let's just take a tiger, for example. A tiger eats about 15 to 30 pounds of raw meat a day. So think about going to your grocery store and buying 15 pounds of raw chicken. That's going to be times two every single day. Whether or not money's coming in, those cats have to eat. So back in the early days when we were acquiring animals, and, and all of that, it was really difficult to pay for the care and feeding of these cats because we weren't rich and we didn't have millions of dollars. And, you know, life was very, very humble and meek back in those days. And that's another reason for Bhagavan developing this whole vegetarian thing. We ate rice and beans mostly back in those days. And in my opinion, Bhagavan will tell a completely different story about this. But in my opinion, the real reason we did it was because it was cheap and we could eat rice and beans forever, basically, you know, but the cats came first. And so every dollar that came in the door went to them. So suddenly we're so imagine that that's how we're living. And then all of a sudden I catch him ripping open this giant hefty bag filled with cash. Where did you get that? You know, and why are you hurting me? Why are you attacking me? Because I caught you opening up this bag of cash. Well, the cash went away. I never saw it again. And Bhagavan never mentioned it again. And the whole thing blew over. 
And then the second time he tried to kill me was in a hotel lobby in Lima, Peru. We were on tour in South America and I had, I had, wasn't being paid. My whole beef with Bhagavan all of these years that I worked with him was the fact that I was not getting paid. And I was the one that was bringing in all the money. It was my magic show that was bringing in these big dollar contracts. And uh, I, I wasn't seeing any of the money. And of course, his excuse was the animals come first. You know, the animals have to eat first. We have to take care of them. And it's really expensive to care and feed for the animals, which is true. I'll give him that. But on some sh some tours, we were making 50 grand a week, you know, 30 to $50,000 a week, depending on the tour. And it doesn't cost all of that to, uh, to care and feed for these animals. So where's my cut? So this was always my problem. Finally, it came to a head in June of 1993 or four. We were on tour in South America. Uh, we were in Lima, Peru. And um, the children's TV show that I had been making appearances on to promote the tour, it was a children's show called Nubalus, the most popular children's TV show in all of the Spanish-speaking world. It was seen by 80 million people every single week. And they would do two three-hour broadcasts on Saturday and Sunday. Came on at 9 a.m., went off at noon. That show loved me. They loved because I was, you know, this bumbling, goofy kind of magical character, and they loved it. So they offered me a, a contract. And I saw this as my opportunity to get away from Bhagavan. So I took the contract, and I approached him in the hotel lobby, and I said, I just want to let you know I've been offered this deal. It doesn't include you, and I'm going to take it. And he got violent instantly. And in the middle he was of like, the you're lobby? not going anywhere. And he, in, the, in, the, in the lobby. And then he suddenly realized that the commotion that he had caused had drawn attention and everybody was looking at us. So he stopped. He backed off. He got into an elevator. And I never saw him again. That was the last time the two of us were uh, in the same room. Jesus. What he vanished in the characters. middle of the night with all of the equipment, all of the costumes, all of the animals. And he thought he was leaving me destitute. Um, but, uh, you know, that was his plan. And, he, you know, the whole time he's telling me, you're nothing without me. It's the animals people like. They don't like you. You're a piece of shit. You're, you know, you'll never make it. You'll never do anything. Um, boy, did I prove him wrong. But uh, at that time, I was 20... 324 at the time, something like that, really young guy. Um, and I just saw this TV show as my way out. And it, it really, really worked out uh, for me, fortunately. What do you say to people that raise the criticism that the animals shouldn't be in a show? Today, I agree with them. Um, I, I was not on that side of the fence for a very, very long time. Uh, I made my living uh, with, with animals in my show. Uh, for a very, very long time. But here's what changed my opinion. Traveling with these animals is really hard. It's hard on the animals to travel, uh, especially international. When we travel uh, a tiger international, for example, let's say we're going to South America. Oh, we're having Wi-Fi issues. Okay, how about now? Yeah, no, it's yeah, fine. It's we, fine. We'll just cut in. So you were uh, you were saying that you wouldn't have agreed with that in the past, but now you agree with that, the notion that the animal should be in it. Yeah, so it it's 
traveling internationally with these animals is so hard. You know, you put them in a cage, you put them into a jumbo jet and you fly them sometimes 15 hours around the world. And the only way that you can do that is to sedate them. Um, and that's where I start to have problems is when we start drugging animals in order to get what we need out of them. Um, in the end, uh, for me, I always felt bad about it, but because it was the backbone of my early career, um, and at that time, I thought that I needed the Tigers in order to separate myself from all of the other performers out there. Uh, and to a large degree, it worked. That, that really did help me in the very early days. Later on, I would learn that I didn't need the Tigers, that it was my personality and my interaction with the audience is what really made the show. But in the early days, I didn't know that. And Bhagavan had brainwashed me completely to believe that without these Tigers, I was absolutely nothing. But were there, were there ever moments that gave you pause working with the animals where you felt like they weren't enjoying it? Besides the traveling, I just mean on like a local level. Yeah. Yeah, you can tell. When a cat, you get to know these cats really well. And so you can tell when a cat is not having a good day. You can tell when a cat's angry. You can tell when a cat, they go through moods just like anybody else. You know, Arthur, uh, the lion, the big lion uh, that you'll see on my Instagram, uh, anybody who wants to check out my Instagram, it's Stephen Diamond Magic. And on there, if you scroll all the way to the bottom, you'll see pictures of me with the tigers. The big lion. Uh, that I'm pictured with is Arthur. His name was King Arthur Rex. He died in about 2004, but that was a one in a million cat. That cat um, understood that he was performing. He understood he was on stage. He loved the attention from the uh, public. He he would respond to, to applause. He knew what he was doing. He's He was one in a million. And um, that particular cat would religiously try and kill me about every six months. <laughs> because he would just go through his little lion thing and the little instincts would kick into him and he would suddenly say, mm, you know what, maybe you're not as strong as you think you are. Right. And he would come at me, but we would always know when that was about to happen because a few days before that you could start to see him scheming in his little lion mind. Mm. And every time I would come around, his ears would lay down and he would start to watch me in ways that, wasn't characteristic of him normally. So yeah, you know, and, and accidents happen. I've been bitten. I've been dragged across the stage. I've, you know, there over the years, I've, I've, you know, had some rough encounters with cats, but if you play with fire, you're going to get burnt. Well, I keep thinking of that guy, uh, the famous duo, you know, you live in Vegas, the, the, the one that got Roy. Siegfried and Roy. Siegfried and Roy got eventually mauled by the tiger. And I think a lot of people eventually at that point were like, it was kind of like the Steve Irwin thing where you're sort of just like, well, what did you expect was going to happen? It's the, sort of the same thing. Yeah, but what people don't realize is that Siegfried and Roy did 25,000 live shows over 30 years in this town, and they had one accident. Yeah. So that's a pretty dang good track record yeah. uh, from a performance standpoint and a safety uh, standpoint. And I will be the first to tell you that there are no animals on the planet that were better cared for than Siegfried and Roy's. They had the best care. They had the best veterinarian care. They had the best care backstage and on stage. 
that the finest trainers in the world, the people that Siegfried and Roy hired to work with them in this production were among the best of the best. And, um, and I, I, I separate those people from all of the other animal people all over the world. And I'm not talking about zoological organizations like, you know, the national zoos or SeaWorld or any of those kind of places. They've got great people. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about these roadside attractions, these roadside type zoos, those kind of places. Uh, those people are the worst of the worst. They, I, I, I do everything I can not to associate with them. Well, you said you kind of regret putting them in the show. But I, th I think the counter argument, I, I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with it to some extent, would be even if the animals were treated well with Siegfried and Roy, wouldn't they be treated better, better just being in nature? Yeah, of course they would. But those animals were all born in captivity, so they don't even know what that is. Uh, they they would die within a couple days uh, if you took released one of Siegfried and Roy's cats in the wild. They would instantly die. They'd be killed. They would be prey themselves. Um, there's no way that they could survive in the wild, uh, having born in captivity. They wouldn't know how to fend for themselves. They wouldn't know how to uh, uh, hunt for food. Um, you know, they would die pretty quickly. So what kind of, fee uh, after the shows aired and did you get sort of scurrilous attacks from animal activists? Not really. Uh, that was more early in my career. Um, we used to get picketed by PETA. I used to have two different organizations that sometimes would show up at my show. You'd have PETA on one side of the street and then on the other side, you'd have um, some church or religious organization who was protesting me doing magic because they would view my <laughs> magic tricks as being associated with the devil. So I used to get picketed by both of them from time to time. And I had my run-ins with both of them. They're, but, equal, um, they're both it equally was as scary. I'm thinking of like Westboro Baptist church and then like PETA, they're both kind of like scary in their own way. Like I'd like to send you yeah, after my Let me exes. tell you, people don't realize how powerful PETA is. Yeah. I mean, PETA single-handedly, it took them 30 years to do it, but PETA single-handedly shut down Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, a 140 plus year old institution. And they brought it to its knees. So they're a pretty powerful organization. But I I will tell you that. I understand their perspective a lot better today than I did in the past. Um, I don't always agree with how they do things, but I do think that there needs to be some education for the general public about what really goes on in some of these major uh, animal attractions. Well, after the, the awareness around Tiger King, did the exotic trade of animals in America decrease? I, I don't think Tiger King did anything for that. I think Siegfried and Roy's accident did way more uh, for that. Um, Siegfried and Roy's accident pretty much guaranteed that there would be no more animal shows, at least in Las Vegas, for sure. You'll never see another tiger on stage in this town. Um, but I think its ripple effect has affected the entire planet uh, because I don't know a single show that is touring right now with animals. Um, you might find a small tent circus in Mexico or somewhere in some obscure country in Europe somewhere that has some tigers still in the show. But aside from that, no major production 
is going to allow it to happen. And the main reason is because the insurance companies will no longer insure it. Right. And I think the PR, you got you to gotta weigh the PR. Although I, I imagine, listen, a lot of people still go to SeaWorld. And I think also I've heard the argument that you said, which is a lot of people just say, well, release the animals. But, you know, you, you know more than me. But I assume you can't just release those whales because it's the same kind of thing no, where they're already in captivity. It's the same kind of thing. Yeah, and they would people don't understand they have well-meaning behind their intentions of saying let the animals free but they don't realize the truth is that those animals just simply cannot survive yeah okay i want to talk about your childhood so it says here you were pretty precocious you started practicing magic around age 12 or 7 yeah actually it started at 7 um, my father took me to this amusement park in Williamsburg, Virginia called Bush Gardens. And um, as you walk into the park, just over to your left, there's a replica of the Globe Theater, Shakespeare's Globe Theater. And in that theater, they had a show called Mark Wilson's Magic at the Globe Theater. I'd never seen a magic show. I was seven years old. My dad took me to the opening day of the park uh, for that season and we went in and I saw it and I said, dad, what's that? And he said, oh, it's a magic show. He said, you want to go see it? And I said, sure. We went in, I saw the show. It changed my life. The, the, the illusionist on stage was levitating girls and making, you know, sawing girls in half and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And I came out of that show and I looked at my dad and I was like, dad, I want to be a magician. And he said, if that's what you want to be, that's okay with me. Wow. And that was a so pivotal cool. point in my life. Because in that moment, I had the stamp of approval from my dad, which meant that's what I could do. And I never looked back. Never. I never had another single thought about being anything else. Most parents at that age, if you said that, would tell you to hit the road or laugh in your face. So, I mean, I thought would have been my mother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that. Well, I think it's probably that was my mom. You made it happen, right? They probably saw something, or your dad saw something right. in you that there were talent, there was talent there, and drive and ambition. So you could actually become. How does one? Yeah, he become bought, a magician. He bought me my first magic set. Sorry. He yeah, he bought me my first magic set, and it was just a little like magic set from a drugstore, and um, uh, I learned how to do every trick that was in the set, and I started showing my dad. And that's when my dad was impressed and he was like, wow, you really get this. You understand how to do this. And it just came natural to me. And he was like, let's go find a magic shop. So he looked through the phone book and we found a magic shop about an hour away from where we live. And that next weekend, my dad took me to the magic shop and I bought a bunch of magic tricks and came home and the rest, as they say, is history. Well, how, well, I think that's the part I want to know. So it's like, how do you how do you do you build up a fan base? Do you start going to different restaurants and venues and say, I'd like to perform here? And then it just sort of snowballs from word of mouth. So in my particular case, it didn't happen the way that it normally does. I didn't go the birthday party magician route or any of that kind of thing. I was a big thinker. I was a big dreamer, still am to this day. Everything I do is larger than life. It always has been. And that's just the way my brain works. I think the big picture. I've never been about small little details. So um, back in that time, I mean, you got to realize this is the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, I'm 53 years old today. And um, back in that time, 
we didn't have the technology that we have today. And so it was a completely different ball game. When you were coming up, if you were a talent of some type, whether you were a singer, a magician, or a juggler, or whatever it was that you did, you had to hustle. You had to hustle to get work. You had to go knock on doors. You had to say, hi, I'm, you know, my name is Steven, and I'm a magician. Will you book me for you know, your next event? And you would hand them your flyers that you Xeroxed at the library, um, you know, and all those kind of things. You really had to hustle. You had to knock on doors to get that. That doesn't exist today. That's gone. And I really think that it hurts a lot of artists uh, today because when you come up that way, when you come up the way I did, where you had to hustle to get anything to happen, and the way it happened for me, you learn you learn the basics of how to do everything. You build a real solid foundation from which you can build an empire uh, or a career. And in my particular case, um, I got hired when I was about, I guess I was about 10 or 11 years old to do a corporate event for Xerox, the company. And um, at that time they were the, you know, copy machine making company. And so I did that corporate event and there were so many people at that event that word spread and I started getting calls from corporations everywhere that wanted me to come and do their Christmas parties, their barbecues. So I became the corporate king. By the time I was 12 years old, I was literally making more money than my parents. It's wow. like and it's like the and appeal that's how, is well a part of your it appeal all started. Is, yeah, well the part of your appeal is you're a little kid who's great at it. It's like a little Doogie Hauser. <laughs> that's so cute. It, it really was, and you know that show really resonated with me when I when that show was on the air. Um, I used to watch it and kind of giggle sometimes because it reminded me of my own life. I knew what it was like to be a child prodigy and to be celebrated at such a young age for something that you were extraordinary at that other people couldn't do. So I related with Doogie Hauser on that level. And um, so when I started doing these corporate events, one corporation would just pass me around and that's how really it started. And then I started doing trade shows and then I started getting you know bigger banquets and stuff like that. And I was reinvesting all this money, every penny that was coming in uh, I was reinvesting it in bigger and bigger, bigger illusions. And it just kept growing and growing and growing. And before you knew it, by the time I was 18 years old, um, I, I was doing pretty well. Yeah. Can you give us an idea, not to be uncouth, but like what, how much were you making in today's dollars? <laughs> um, so I'll tell you this. So for like a corporate show, like a dinner show, for example, an awards banquet, which I did millions of, a corporate awards banquet. You know, they have the award show, they have the dinner, the stage, and then they'll have some sort of entertainment that comes in. So back in those days, you would pay three to $5,000 to have me come in and, and do an hour show. So what would that be? In today? I'm really bad with this kind of stuff. Like, I don't know. It's probably be like 10 grand today. Yeah, 10 grand. I'd say a little bit more probably. The latest inflation bump. Wow. So yeah. did it, making that kind of money at 18, did it start to fuck with fuck with you mentally? Did were people leaning on you? Well, my parents had I had an agreement with my dad which was you can do whatever you want as long as you graduate high school. And that was the one caveat. He was like you have to graduate high school. I don't care about the magic. I don't care what kind of money you're making. You have to graduate. So getting through high school was a struggle for me because my brain couldn't 
comprehend the concept. If I'm making this kind of money, why do I need to go there? You know, what are these teachers going to teach me? Because I'm way beyond this. And that was my mentality. Today, I have a completely different opinion of that. High school's great. And I think you need to graduate. But back then, I was making a lot of money and it was hard to convince me why I need to go sit in a classroom for eight hours a day when I could be booking shows, more shows and making even more money. Uh, but my father would not allow it. He was very strict about that. So the vast majority of my shows were on weekends, at night, or during the summertime. I was reading in your bio that some really traumatic things happened to you happened to you as a kid, which we can get into in a sec. But yeah, what do you think it is that draws someone to? I mean, I I can speak personally as someone who is drawn to comedy. It's you know we know tears of a clown, blah blah blah. I've done it a million times. But what do you think it is that draws someone to a career in which they are essentially entertaining with illusion? I mean, I don't know if you've ever peeled that back on a deeper level to think about what is it about me that, you know, I think the innate insecurity of being a performer, which I can relate to, but also that the idea of sort of the diversion and the illusion of the whole act. Like, do you think something happened to you when you were younger that made you want to pursue a career like that? Absolutely. Um, it's a fascinating story. Um, we're, there's a documentary being produced right now about my life. And so I've been having to rehash all of this recently. So I'll tell you what it is. Um, I grew up with a severely mentally ill mother. She was a Southern Baptist, evangelical, radicalized, brainwashed, Christian. The likes of, I'm not talking about some little old lady that goes to church on Sundays and goes to Sunday school. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a radicalized next level mental illness type obsession with religion. So that's how I grew up. And I did everything I could to get away from my mom. My mom was very physically abusive being the good Christian that she was. Um, she used to beat the hell out of me on, almost on a daily basis. Uh, I can remember several times where she tied me up and locked me into a closet for hours and hours at a time as punishment. Um, th this was the kind of things I had to deal with at home. My father was completely different. He was the polar opposite of my mom. My mom was, you know, this crazy woman who was obsessed with religion. And my dad was like Walt Disney, who would sit down and watch the Muppet show with me. And you know, we would just laugh hysterically at Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy. And so it was, a, it, I had these two separate worlds. When I learned that I could make people laugh, and when I learned that I could use magic as a way to make friends and literally get anything I wanted, because if there was anything I wanted, I knew all I had to do was win you over with my magic and I could usually get it. And so that happened by the time I was, you know, eight, nine years old, I was developing those skills. And so it occurred to me one day, and I remember specifically when it happened, there was this particular moment when it suddenly, when I suddenly realized that this could be a lot bigger than what I was thinking at that time. And I realized, wow, there are these things called big illusions, big stage illusions. And if I could just get those, then I would 
be in demand all over the place and I could get away from my mother. So my magic career really and truly honestly came out of the fact that I was looking for a way to stop the abuse that I was going through at home. And that's when I created Stephen Diamond. Right. Do you think that maniacal focus to succeed would exist if you didn't have the trauma of your youth? Because I also read that you witnessed Absolutely your friend's not. mother being murdered. Yeah. I didn't actually see the murder, but I, I found the murder scene afterwards. Uh, my babysitter, when my parents got a divorce when I was eight years old, and it was a very heated, contentious divorce, very ugly and nasty. And um, the judge in the case asked to see me. And the judge came and said, who do you want to be with? And I said, definitely dad, I'm going with dad. And so he said, okay, he said, I'm going to award custody to your father, which he did. So right after that, we moved into a set of apartments. Now, my father owned his own trucking business, a small trucking repair business, but it was successful. And But he would work from like seven in the morning till seven at night. So he was kind of a workaholic. I inherited that from him. And um, we moved into these apartments. And because my dad was gone, he needed a babysitter for me. And there were these two young boys that were a year apart from each other, lived in the building across from us. And their mother offered, because I was in, rode the bus with these two boys, and they offered, uh, she offered to watch me in the afternoons. So when I would come home with the boys on the bus, I would just go to her house and we would watch Scooby-Doo and eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And she would keep me until my father would come home and honk the horn and I'd run out and go away. So these boys became some of my best friends. And um, one weekend, my father decided to take us to King's Dominion. My dad loved amusement parks, and so do I to this day. I'm a roller coaster fanatic. And um, he had decided to take us to King's Dominion, which was in Richmond, about two hours away. So we went, spent the whole day at the amusement park. When we came home, we caught their mom and dad fighting in front of, in the front yard of the apartment complex. And my dad could tell that it was, wasn't good. So he said, hey, boys, let's order a pizza. And why don't you guys come on in and just stay with, with us tonight? So he beeped the horn, waved at them. They waved back at, at us. And we just went into the house. And my dad ordered some pizza. And things were normal. We were watching TV late at night, probably 10, 11 o'clock at night. There's a knock at the door. And it's their mother. And when she came to the door, she was kind of shook. You could tell that something was wrong. She was disheveled. Her hair was all messed up. And she looked like she'd kind of been roughed up a little bit. And she was crying. You could tell that she had been crying anyway. And she wanted the boys to come home. And so, you know, my dad can't hold them hostage. So he said, okay, go home. So the boys went back uh, home. We went to bed about three or four in the morning. We hear all these sirens and cop cars and ambulances, and we lived in the back of the complex. So our apartment windows faced, faced uh, uh, some woods, and we could see over the top of the apartment complex all of the red uh, lights from the, the, the fire trucks and everything. And my dad thought the building was on fire. So he came and woke me up. And I was just in t-shirt and underwear and he threw some shoes on me and out the door we went. And when we got out there, we realized that all of the rescue people were paying attention to the building that my friends lived in. So my dad went up to a fireman or a policeman, I can't remember now, 
and started talking to him to find out what was going on. And I slipped away and went around the back of the apartment and went up the back stairs and I walked right into the apartment. And when I walked in, uh, I suddenly splashed in a pool of blood. We're going to pause it right there in the middle of our interview with Stephen Diamond. The rest will be next week. If you'd like bonus content for the show, patreon.com slash unmentionable podcast. There are 89 episodes out right now. About a third of that catalog is permanently archived. If you'd like to access it, you can go on Patreon, become a member. If you use Spotify, you will see those episodes with locks on them. They will be permanently locked. We're not going to unlock them. They are the... They are in the bowels. We are not pulling them out. So if you see an episode you like on there and you really want to listen to it, maybe it's our interview with uh, FeetFinder.com. Maybe it's our interview with the truckers as they headed off to Ottawa. You remember that. (laughs) Um, You can go on there. And if you're an Apple user, you can hit at the top. There's a button to become a premium subscriber. And then the Apple Pay would will pop up. You can double hit it and you're then a monthly subscriber. And all those episodes will appear to you on Spotify. When you hit the lock, it emails you a whole thing. You can figure it out. You're smart enough. That's it. That's all. Love you. Bye. Bye.